Section 20 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. The Prevention of Crime, Part 3. With the same methods, we might study tobacco and coffee and tea, bromides and morphine, but also the effects of physical or mental overstrain, of bad air and bad light, of irrational nourishment and insufficient sleep, of exhaustive sports and emotional exertions, and a hundred other factors which enter into the daily life of the masses. On such an experimental basis only can we hope for regulation and improvement. A sweeping prescription, of course, might be reached without laboratory studies. Simply to forbid everything is easy, but such radicalism is practically impossible as far as the evidence of fatigue or poverty is concerned, and perhaps possible but unwise as far as the stimulants are in question. The psychological experiment must show the middle way which shall close the fountains of evil and yet keep open the sources of good. Mere abstinence from stimulants, indeed, is no real solution to the problem. It is just the psychologist who knows too well the evil effects of monotony and emptiness, who understands that the craving for stimulants and artificial excitement belongs to the deepest conditions of our physical existence, and that the complete suppression of it leads to mental explosions, which brings man again to disastrous impulses and crime. The laboratory experiment can demonstrate in turn how the psychological conditions are changed when such a dreary state of waiting and monotony lays hold on the mind, how certain mental functions are starving and others dangerously overwrought. A state of dullness and expectant attention is created in which the longing for contrast may intensify the desires to a point where the reaction is more vehement than under any stimulant. That is the state which, projected into the masses, may lead to gambling and perversity, and on to irrational crimes, which through the mere excitement of the imagination overcome the emptiness of an unstimulated life. Or the experiment may undertake to examine the subtler mechanism of mental inhibition. How far does the suppression and inhibition of the motor impulse depend on the intensity of the counter-stimulus, and how far on habit, that is, on unbroken repetition? How is it altered by interruption of training, or by the feeling tone of the ideas? Simple measurement of reaction times may be again the method, varied by the introduction of warning signals, which are to counterbalance the stimulus. Yet the short schematic experiments of the psychologist's workshop illustrate clearly how and why a public state of lawless corruption and general disrespect of law must undermine the inhibitory effects of the law, and thus bring crime to a rich harvest. That is just the wonderful power of the psychological experiment, that it can analyze the largest social movements in the smallest and most schematic miniature copies of the mental forces involved, and from the subtle analysis is only one step to the elimination of dangers. What the commercialism of our time, or the vices of the street, the recklessness of the masses, and the vulgarity of the newspapers, the frivolity of the stage, and the excitement of the gambling halls may mean for the weak individual, 
cannot be better understood than through the microscopical model of it in the experimental test which allows subtle variations. The psychologist will thus certainly not believe that all or most is done for the prevention of crime by mere threatening with punishment. The question in this connection is not whether the punishment satisfies our demand for retaliation or whether the punishment helps indirectly towards prevention by educating and reforming the man behind whom the doors of the penitentiary are closed. The question is now only whether the fear of a future judicial punishment will be a sufficient counter-idea to check the criminal impulse. The psychologist cannot forget that too many conditions must frustrate such expectations. The hope of escaping justice in the concrete case will easily have a stronger feeling tone than the opposing fear of the abstract general law. The strength of the forbidden desire will narrow the circle of associations and eliminate the idea of the probable consequences. The stupid mind will not link the correct expectations. The slow mind will bring the check too late when the deed is done. The vehement mind will overrule the energies of inhibition. The emotional mind will be more moved by the anticipated immediate pleasure than by the thought of a later suffering. And all of this will be reinforced if overstrain has destroyed the nervous balance or if stimulants have smoothed the path of motor discharge. If the severity of cruel punishments has brutalized the mind, the threat will be as ineffective as if the mildness of the punishment had reduced its pain. And worst of all, this fear will be ruled out if the mind develops in an atmosphere of crime, where the child hears of the criminal as hero and looks at jail as an ordinary affair, troublesome only as most factors in his slum life are troublesome. Or if the anarchy of corruption or class justice, of reckless legislation or public indifference to law defeats the inhibiting counter-idea of punishment and deprives it of its emotional strength. The system of punishment will be the more disappointing, the more mechanical it is in its application. The plan of probation thus means a real progress. More important than the motives of fear are the influences which can shape the minds of the tempted, the influences which reduce the emotional and motor powers of forbidden desires, awake regularly and strongly the social counter-ideas, strengthen their inhibiting influence, and weaken thus the primary impulse. It must be said again, criminals are not born but made, not even self-made, but fellow-made. Society must work negatively to remove those influences which work in the opposite direction. The atmosphere of criminality, the vulgarity and brutality, the meanness and frivolity of the surroundings must be removed from the mind in its development. And if the social contrasts are necessary for much of the good, at least the vulgar esteem of mere riches and the pitiless contempt for misery can be eliminated. Above all, a well-behaved mind grows only in a well-treated body. True, far-seeing hygiene can prevent more crime than any law. But it is not only a question of the favorite work of our hygienists, the infections and germ diseases, together with the sanitary conditions of factories and tenements. Hygiene has to take no less care of the overworked or wrongly treated senses and nerve systems from the schoolroom to the stock exchange. There is no gain if we avoid typhoid epidemics 
but fall into epidemics of insanity. The whole rhythm of life breaks down the instruments of nervous resistance, and the most immediate symptom is necessarily the growth of crime. It is not the impulse itself, but the inability to resist the impulse that is the real criminal feature. The banker who speculates with the funds of his bank is not a criminal because such an idea arises in his consciousness, but because his idea is not inhibited by the counter-ideas. And yet the whole community has pushed to break down the barriers which his mind could have put into the motor path of the ruinous impulse. Of course, the negative precautions must be supplemented by the positive ones. Hygiene has not only to destroy the unclean, but to build up the clean. And for mental hygiene, this holds still more strongly. To create a public life which is an example and an inspiration to the humblest, which fills with civic pride the lowest, means to abolish the penitentiaries. The public welfare must give to everybody, through work, through politics, through education, through art, through religion, a kind of life interest and life content in which envy is meaningless. It is from this realm that the counter-ideas must be reinforced that automatically check the impulse to the immoral deed. But no public scheme can make superfluous those clearest sources of pure life, the motives of private personal interest between human being and human being. Everything which strengthens family life and works against its dissolution, everything which gives the touch of personal sympathy to the forlorn, helps towards the prevention of crime. How often can a criminal life be fundamentally changed as soon as the absurd prejudice is given up that every criminal is a different kind of man from those outside of jail, and straightforward sympathy instead of mere charitable pity is offered? To make them feel that they are recognized as equals means to win them over to decency. And those who analyze them psychologically know well that there is no real condescension necessary for such acknowledgement. They are the equals of the unpunished. They are stupid or lazy or vehement or reckless or uneducated or unemotional or egotistic, but all that we find on this side of the legal demarcation line as well. We are accustomed to bow to the stupid and lazy and reckless and egotistic, in case that life has brought them under conditions where a sufficient balance was secured, they are not different in their inmost selves, even if surroundings, bad example, overwhelming temptation, the saloon, the cruelty of misfortune, has once in a hasty hour destroyed that balance. There lies finally the deep importance of a full confession. The man who confesses puts himself again on an equal ground with the honest majority. He belongs again to those who want both health and justice. He gives up his identity with the criminal and eliminates the crime like a foreign body from his life. A true confession wins the bedrock of life again and is the safest prevention of further crime. The psychologist, I say it with hesitation as my observations on that point may not yet be complete enough, and the subject is an entirely new one, may even be able to find out by his experiments whether a true confession is probable or not. After all, the actions of every man strive for satisfaction, and there cannot be satisfaction without unity. He who lives in the present only gains such satisfaction 
from the immediate experience. The pleasure and enjoyment of the present hour is the end of his consciousness and absorbs him so fully that complete unity of mind is reached. Another type rushes forward, the mind directed toward the future. The suffering of the hour is overborne by the hope of the coming success, and present and future complete for him the unity of life. Both those who turn to the present and to the future cannot have a desire for true, liberating confession. But it is different with those who have a vivid memory and whose mind is thus ever turning back to the past. There is the unending conflict between their memories, which belong to the life of purity, to childhood and parents' love, to religion and friendship, and the present sorrow and anxiety. The craving for unity must end this struggle. A confession connects the present with the past again and throws out the interfering intrusion of shame. If the experiment of the psychologist demonstrates the possession of a vivid living memory, the chances are strong that a confession is to be trusted. The criminal deed is thus almost a split-off consciousness, a part of a dissociated personality, and through the confession, it is cut off absolutely. On the other hand, if it is too late, if the split-off part has grown to be the stronger and has finally become the real self, then it is nearly always too late for prevention by social hygiene. The criminal who has become a professional is nearly always lost, and society has only to consider how to protect itself against the damage he is effecting. He must be separated from the commonwealth, just as the insane must be removed from the marketplaces of life. Short punishment for the professional criminal is useless and harmful in every respect. But his career is a terrible warning against delaying the prevention of crime till society, rashly ignoring psychology, has itself manufactured the hopeless criminal. End of Section 20 End of On the Witness Stand Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg